You're listening to Down to a Science, a LANL podcast series. Hundreds of miles north of the Arctic Circle is a small island called Devon, home to the Houghton Impact Crater. Houghton is a cold, dry, and windy Arctic desert that's nearly always light in the summer and always dark in the winter. Its average temperature is one degree Fahrenheit. It's one of the northernmost craters on Earth formed nearly 40 million years ago when an asteroid or a comet hit the island. There's little vegetation and nobody lives there. So why do our scientists want to go to one of the least welcoming places on the planet? Because when you can't go to Mars, Houghton is so much like the red planet, it's the next best place to test new technology that could one day help explore Mars and other planets. I'm your host, Lexi Petronas from Los Alamos National Laboratory, and today we're talking to Nina Lanza, a planetary scientist at Los Alamos, and Lisa Danielson, director of the Center for Space and Earth Science at Los Alamos, about their expedition to northern Canada. Here's Nina. Houghton is an impact crater that's on the world's largest uninhabited island, Devon Island, in the Canadian Arctic. And it's an amazing place to go study Mars and other planets because there aren't many places on Earth that are both, you know, have a crater in it, like many planetary surfaces, and also are permanently frozen. So Houghton has both of these things. So for that reason, we really wanted to go there so that we could start studying environments that were like places on Mars and beyond. Here's Lisa Danielson. Nina was talking about planetary analogs and and Houghton Crater is not only a Mars analog site, but it's also a Titan analog site. And in fact, it has a full four-star Google review in spite of the fact that one of the reviewers noted that there is no Starbucks on the island. Man, how do we even survive? It's not possible, not a habitable place. (laughs) Coffee and hot beverages was very much an integral part of our uh, science exploration uh, and being up in that environment though. It was was kind of a thing, you know, must have the hot beverage. Well, actually, you know, we were thinking about maybe not bringing a coffee maker and thank goodness we did not make that bad call. We actually (laughs) did bring uh, a camping uh, coffee maker that could make something like 12 cups of coffee at a time. And man, that thing was going all the time, all the time. I think we might not have made it without it. Despite the four star rating, getting to Houghton is no simple task. In preparation for departure, you should be seated with your seat back upright, your tray table stowed, and your seat belt fastened. Once the main cabin door is closed, electronic devices must be in a non-transmitting mode. Thank you. Well, Houghton is really far away from New Mexico, really far away from everywhere, actually. So it actually takes many different flights to get there. So, of course, we had to take a commercial flight from New Mexico to Canada. Um, So we can actually take commercial flights all the way to Iqaluit in Northern Canada. But from there, uh, it actually gets a lot harder. So we we can fly into Iqaluit and then to Resolute Bay, uh, which is on Cornwallis Island. And that's where the Polar Continental Shelf Program or PCSP is located. And that's the Canadian government entity that regulates and provides logistics for all research in the Canadian Arctic. 
And so from there, um, they can arrange for us to charter flights with Ken Bork Air or KBA. And so they'll take us wherever we need to go, even if there isn't a runway, even if there is no one there, uh, these pilots are incredible. Um, these are the same pilots that fly in the Arctic and in the Antarctic. So they have a lot of experience flying in wild places. Um, so of course it takes um, a lot of conditions to be right to be able to get there. So if the weather isn't good, you're not gonna come in. If the weather isn't good, you're also not necessarily gonna be picked up. So you have to be very, very flexible. Um, and you have to realize that sometimes not all of your gear gets there with you. Sometimes you're not leaving when you think you're going to leave. And so really it's best just to have a paperback and, uh, pack your patience as they say. Oh, I like that. Pack your patience. I, I found that the travel was very much like the Indiana Jones dotted line. You know, we, we made a lot of stops. And so, um, Nina cleverly planned, that we would in our, um, you know, our quote unquote big city travel, we would go to Ottawa and have a buffer day because once you get past that and uh, the Arctic um, weather patterns are super unpredictable and you don't know if you're gonna be able to get to your next destination. And and as Nina said, yeah, we had uh, the last big plane lands in a Callowit and then the, the Hop, hop, hop is, um, which I think is still commercial flights, but you get on the, the tiny plane and stop at Pond Inlet and then Arctic Bay and then Resolute, which is the uh, research station. And then it's then it's just up to um, the polar continental shelf to decide if the weather conditions are favorable. And we get to very excitingly get in the Twin Otter, um, go to the field site, circle around, take a look at it. You get this beautiful panoramic view um, before landing just on the ground, basically. There's a staked out runway spot that's relatively flat for the planes to land. The I, I can't express, it's kind of too bad this is an audio medium because the views and the, the beauty of the snow and the ice and just the landforms is just incredible. And we're all, we were all just with our little faces pressed up against the glass, taking pictures and trying to see what we could see and uh, definitely did not do it justice in, in terms of the um, beautiful landscape. After their long journey, the team was ready to test the Gamma Rotorcraft for Analog Planetary Environments mission concept, which is a concept for a drone that could one day search for life on other planets. Because the drone has such a long name, it goes by its initials, G-R-A-P-E, GRAPE. Well, I would like to actually have Lisa maybe introduce the acronym since she was the brilliant mastermind behind it. So I'll just say that we know that you can't have a mission that doesn't have an acronym. This is a really important tradition in uh, NASA programs. So um, Lisa is a master at that. So when we were thinking about what we wanted to call this project, um, Lisa came up with what I think is the really a perfect name. Thank you, Nina. It, it's, uh, I have a process for acronyms since I was at NASA for many years before coming to Los Alamos. And, uh, I love to, it's just kind of a fun thing that I like to do. I give people some acronyms, they can take it or leave it, but then great teamwork. Nina designed the mission patch for us. And so we have um, we have a logo to put with our mission, and Grape is the Gamma Rotocraft for Analog Planetary Environments, and it's a very cute little 
bunch of grapes flying around looking at stuff. And as Lisa points out, it's a, it's a mission concept that's based on using instrumentation um, on a UAS, so uncrewed aerial uh, system. So for us, that was a, a quadcopter. Um, so we really wanted to develop instrumentation that could be used on um, an aerial platform that maybe could also land. Um, and this is something that is already being done as part of the Dragonfly mission to Titan. This is a pre-existing mission that's gonna fly in several years um, to the moon of Saturn. And the idea is that Dragonfly hops around and can actually take data um, in many different places. We wanted to explore this concept a little bit further and think about what we could do um, you know, taking data both from the air and also from the ground. What we wanted to do was to, to um, hone a technique that's actually been used on planetary surfaces in the, in the past. So this is gamma ray and neutron spectroscopy. So this is a technique that has been around for a while. We have a lot of expertise at Los Alamos in this technique, but we wanted to develop it further for problems of interest to the planetary community. So this would be to understand things like biosignatures, right? We're looking for signs of life elsewhere. And this is not a, a technique that has traditionally been used for this purpose. So we were trying some new ways um, of, of doing this technique to be able to better identify these signatures of interest. And then we also wanted to see how we could do sample site selection using just images from the air. You know, the gold standard for geology is having geologists actually go up to something and look at it. And that's the best way to tell if something's worth sampling or not. But until we can send people to all the amazing places in the solar system, we need to rely on our remote sensing instruments. So we wanted to test what we would need to know if we had only a data set taken from a drone versus what people would pick if they were on the ground. So this is testing what we would call a concept of operations or CONOPS for sample selection. So these are the two things we were trying to accomplish with GRAPE at Houghton. Picture that a drone-based neutron spectroscopy instrument that can adapt to its surroundings. Because it's automated, it can acquire biosignature information without having to talk to humans on Earth. That would be a major advancement in planetary exploration. It could make decisions about where to search for life. It could enhance researchers' ability to acquire high-quality data from planetary missions without spending time waiting for humans to analyze and make decisions. While at Houghton, the team learned valuable information about the feasibility of using these techniques. So the main technique that we were using in this project was gamma ray and neutron spectroscopy. And so this is a family of uh, techniques that are actually uh, pretty well established. It's something that we do a lot here at Los Alamos, and it's basically a chemistry technique. We're bombarding a sample with neutrons, which will interact with the uh, atoms in the target material, and then we'll get radiation back that we can take a look at. So we'll get gamma rays and we'll also get neutrons back. And that from these, um, this outgoing radiation, we can learn about the composition of the material. So this is something that we actually use on Mars right now. Today, the Curiosity rover has um, a neutron spectroscopy instrument called DAN, the Dynamic Albedo of Neutrons. And so what we're looking for primarily are actually lighter elements. This is a technique that is really, really good at seeing hydrogen in particular. Now, hydrogen is really important to us because, of course, it's a constituent of water. And so on Mars, we're looking for signs of water in the subsurface. So the way that this would work is that you're kind of, you know, you're scattering, you're, you're, you're 
showering the surface with some neutrons, um, and then you're interacting with a volume that's probably about a cubic meter. So a pretty big area uh, volume underneath the rover, and then you're getting information about any hydrogen that's in that area. Um, so we aren't really able to do the gamma ray part of this um, on Mars, but we can do that here on Earth a little bit more easily. And that can give you additional elements. So some of the elements of interest, you know, are gonna be things like, so hydrogen, chlorine, um, we can see, you know, um, boron, which is a really interesting element for the, um, the start of life here on Earth. And there's a, there's a number of, of different uh, elements that you can sort of pull out with enough finessing of the data. So it's, it's a, a chemistry technique that doesn't actually require a lot of moving parts. And this is why it has been used uh, in planetary environments. It can also be done passively. So Mars does not have a protective radiation um, a shield. Uh, it doesn't have a magnetic field, so it all has a really actually horrible radiation environment on the surface, but it's great because it has its own neutrons coming in um, because it doesn't have this pesky atmosphere and magnetic field blocking them. So on Mars, we, we don't necessarily need to try so hard to be able to do this from a distance. Now, of course, on Earth, we have lots of shielding from radiation. That's nice for us but then we need to bring our own neutrons with us. And so we had to bring a device called a pulsed neutron generator or a PNG. And so that does exactly what it sounds like. It pulses neutrons at the surface so that we can then uh, take a look at the outgoing radiation that um, has been stimulated by that interaction. Um, and so we wanted to use this technique because it's one of those tried and true techniques in planetary science, but we wanted to take it to um, a, a, you know, the next level where we're not just looking for you know, some of the more traditional elements, but we'll try to see if we could actually optimize for um, some of the other elements of interest. So we would call this chin-ops. Um, so these um, chin-ops elements are carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, and sulfur. Now, not all of these elements are really gonna be accessible to this uh, gamma ray and neutron spectroscopy technique, but some of them are. And so we really wanted to get a better sense, you know, of, you know, can we see these uh, when they are present in um, the amounts that we might expect for uh, a place containing biosignatures? You know, sometimes, you know, if these elements are present, but they're just not abundant enough, you're not going to see them. And so we really wanted to kind of get a better sense of how you might go about you know, detecting these very important elements um, as you know, we're looking for biosignatures. This is a really big question for NASA. You know, can we find, you know, the building blocks of life and then signs of life, either ancient or, or present um, on other planets? So we really wanted to, we're trying to learn how to use this technique that's been around for a while in this brand new way to address this new problem. So that was something that was an interesting experience because our, you know, this kind of, this concept, um, that we were studying, what we had was basically what we would call visible geology, right? So, so it's visible spectrum light. It's basically um, very much limited to video and still photography that you can do from a drone, from a rotocraft. Um, and so looking at that, it, it, it does have some differences in terms of uh, what you'll experience on the ground, you know, especially a geologist with many years of experience, you've looked at all of the rocks, uh, you can really assess something, but, uh, but there is a bit of a difference in terms of 
what you can see in, in scaling, right? If you're a human being on the ground, your scale of engagement is also limited to what you can see and experience based on just uh, things that are maybe a couple of meters, maybe they're small, you can hold it in your hand, you can go right up to it. So, so from that perspective, some of the limitations are you can't, you can't image something that's a particularly small scale, you know, like that's the size of your, of your hand or your finger. So some of those details are lost, but that can be okay because of, as Nina mentioned, the size of the measurement that we're doing is bigger than that. So, you know, it's going to basically average out what you're measuring. Um, I, I think some of the things that would be helpful is to be able to sense something, uh, to have more measurements than just visible light that's photography and video. One of the advantages of a small maneuverable drone is that you do get a sense of depth and you can, for example, if you're just if you're just um, in an aircraft looking down on the landscape, right? For those of you who've been in a plane, you know, you see things in a certain way, but you don't see something that is going to be, say, next to you as you would be on ground. So if there is terrain that has a lot of relief, you know, that has canyons or um, sheer cliff faces or like in New Mexico where we are, uh, mesas, for example, you, it's a lot easier to see something if you have maneuverability and you can look laterally and see what that different outcrop is. So there's a maneuverability that would be great, but I also think something that is going to be different, and this would be true, say, for the Dragonfly mission, is having multiple instruments, different modalities, things that we could detect, whether it's chemistry or... Um, other kinds of, of instruments rather than just the visible light, uh, that would give us a lot more information and would be really interesting. But right now, in terms of the mission that we just did, we only had that air photo video component. As Lisa was just saying, you know, the, having this um, kind of information, you know, this visual information, plus, you know, other types of data streams is actually really critical. It's something we've learned a lot from our current Mars missions and other missions to other worlds. Um, and it's something that we certainly um, saw ourselves when we were at Houghton. Um, and this is one of the things that we're actually going to hopefully work on in the future. We have a huge amount of data that can be integrated um, and we want to be able to do that. So what we, we have just from the moment we have video and stills, you know, from our drone, um, but we also have a lot of samples on the ground. So we took data points with our gamma ray and neutron spectroscopy instrument, but we also sampled rocks. We brought back, I would say, several hundred pounds of rocks as somebody who had to lift that box. So it was pretty heavy. Um, and so all of those rocks, we know exactly where they came from. And so we have the opportunity to, to try to put those two data streams together. You know, people often use this phrase data fusion. It can mean a lot of different things. This is sort of a, a really rudimentary basic data fusion, but it's still taking two types of information, putting them together and seeing if we can pull out patterns that weren't visible in each data stream alone. And that's gonna be what's gonna help us make these instruments and these platforms autonomous really, which is going to be able to make decisions 
about science without having a human in the loop, without having a human make that decision. That's the goal, right? Because a lot of the places we're sending these instruments, we can't be in constant contact. We're not able to communicate in real time. Even Mars, we cannot communicate in real time. It's far enough away that there's a big enough lag that we we can't command our rovers. They have to be able to do things on their own and sometimes make some science decisions so that we need to be able to, to figure out you know, what are the important signals and then teach our platforms and our instruments to be able to recognize those so that they can actually do that in the future. Um, where, so because we don't, we will not be able to be there making those decisions. We just can't have our very expensive missions waiting idle while we think about it on Earth. Um, so I think that that's really our next steps with the GRAPE projects is to take these data streams and try to combine them and see what other patterns emerge that we can then feed forward into another field test. Nina highlights one of the reasons why it's so important to go to planetary analog sites on Earth. It's that ability to bring samples back in a way that's relatively easy compared to going to another planet in the solar system where I know we have a plan to bring some Mars samples back, but that's many years in the future. And for many planetary missions, it's not possible to return a sample to Earth. So that's one of the reasons why we go study these sites on Earth is because we're building this library and we're building our knowledge base of what rock samples are like in terms of their chemistry, their structure, and so on. So when we send a mission to another planet, we have some idea of what to expect and some at least reference point. Just as importantly, they learned lessons on mission concept design and how to make future expeditions a little easier. I would say we were really quite successful in both of our mission goals. You know, we learned a lot about how to do these measurements in the field. It's one thing to test out a measurement in the laboratory where conditions are really nice and very controlled. It's another thing to pull, you know, lug equipment out into the field and try to take those measurements out in the open. Um, and, and with all of the limitations you have when you work outside, you know, you can't just plug your instrument into the wall, right? You've got to have batteries. They've got to be, you know, the right kind of batteries that can last long enough. Um, there's all kinds of things that can go wrong outside. And I think we learned a lot about how we need to design these instruments in the future to make them really viable for a planetary mission. Um, and I think, too, we learned a ton about how we would do sample site selection. I think there are some ways in which actually, you know, aerial images are really um, interpretable, even if, you know, you don't have people on the ground. Houghton is a really special place because we don't have any pesky vegetation covering up all the beautiful rocks. And uh, that's going to be true anywhere else in the solar system, too. You know, uh, it's a big problem, of course, when you're trying to do this on Earth because, you know, all that beautiful greenery just hides the geology that we're really looking for. Um, so I think, in fact, I was surprised by how well this CONOPS really worked. You know, I think we actually have a lot that we have a lot of chances of getting very interesting materials um, using this kind of aerial vehicle, even if we don't have people in it um, being able to do that sample selection. I was really, really surprised by that. I agree in terms of success, and I do want to mention, um, you know, that this high success rate picture that Nina is uh, painting is absolutely true, and it's a testament to the outstanding um, just talents and skills of the team that we were with. Uh, in in addition to the really outstanding support we got from the Polar Continental Shelf Research 
station, organization, one of those things. <laughs> but uh, I do want to mention just, you know, how challenging the environment is, right? That the laboratory conditions that Nina mentioned and that we think about as very easy and accessible, they really don't exist at all in a field situation. And especially somewhere this remote, there's no quick get in your car, go get something, go fix something. You are self-contained. You are uh, many hours away from even the, the uh, barest help that could provide some assistance for you. So the planning is intense. And then um, we really were fortunate in some ways in terms of weather. So we exceeded our minimum success criteria for number of analyses and deployments and our field campaign uh, because we had really outstanding weather, which is uh, also can be a little bit exhausting because we were just every single day, we were just, a, just about every single day, we were out doing um, uh, sample analysis, sample collection, doing our aerial geology and deploying our instruments. And so, so that helped uh, because there have been seasons and times in the past where field teams who were at that same location had a really challenging time. They, you know, the wind and the rain and any kind of environmental conditions can just ruin your plan um, for the day. So beyond that, just getting these instruments around the terrain was extremely challenging and that would take um, several hours often of the day and be sometimes the majority part of the day was just getting the equipment to and from a field location, setting it up and then collecting the data. So this may be surprising to people, uh, really was the less time consuming part, just the, just the, the logistics of setting up, getting everything ready breaking down, returning to camp. That was the, that would be a majority of a, of a daily activity for everyone. That's a really good point, Lisa. You know, I'm just thinking about that day that we drove to the Houghton Formation, which is a geologic formation inside of Houghton Crater. Um, and we were really excited about that because it's lake sediments. So instead of just being impact um, breccia, it's actually something that's very organic rich, which of course is a really interesting target for us. When I say we drove though, as you recall, we were taking ATVs um, across some crazy terrain. Like, you know, there's no roads, there are no roads um, and it's really rough rocks. And then we had to actually drive across rivers. Um, you gotta be careful about that because if they're too high, right? You're going to flood the engine or you're going to float away. Um, so this takes a lot of really careful evaluation in the moment as well. And it took us, I want to say like at least um, an hour and a half, two hours or something to drive from camp just to that location. And that's before setting up. That's before doing any science. Autonomous life-seeking drones could one day help researchers find life on other planets and their future looks bright. As we're thinking about what we're gonna do um, with all the information we learned from GRAPE, we can actually really look at what NASA has planned and, and sort of tailor uh, our, our results um, to that, those needs. So one of the things I think is so exciting is that we actually put a rotorcraft on another planet for the very first time. And that was the Ingenuity helicopter that went along with the Perseverance rover on Mars. Now, people often say, Wait, is there even air on Mars? You know, can you fly? And yes, there is air on Mars, but just not very much. It's very, very thin. 
And so a lot of people weren't sure we could actually really use a rotorcraft because, I mean, you, you need air, right? You, you can't fly in nothing. But if you have a large enough rotor and you have a small enough payload, then all things are possible. And we've actually just completed the 50th flight of Ingenuity on Mars just this week, which is an incredible accomplishment. Um, I mean, it's amazing that it flew at all. Uh, and because it's been so successful, NASA has actually changed the mission architecture for the upcoming sample return mission. And so this is where um, the samples that have been put aside by the Perseverance rover now will be picked up uh, by a future mission. Um, and they are actually going to now use two helicopters to fetch those samples to put that back on the return vehicle. And that's a big change from what we had originally planned to do. So I think that tells you right there the confidence that NASA now has in rotorcraft for planetary exploration. And then, of course, in addition to these um, helicopters that we have in the present and the future on Mars, we're also going to send a rotorcraft to the uh, Titan, the moon of Saturn. Now, Titan is a little bit of an easier case because Titan has a nice thick atmosphere. It's one and a half times that of Earth at sea level. So it has plenty of air to fly around in. So it's a great um, mode of transportation for instruments on that world. Um, but you can see that the, you know, there's a pattern emerging here. We, um, we know that there's going to be a need for rotorcraft. I think we're going to send a lot of rotorcraft to um, other planets in the solar system and uh, back to Mars in the, in the future. So what we'd like to do with GRAPE is better understand how we can actually use all of these data streams. You know, how do we incorporate um, instrumentation onto a drone platform that's going to be small enough um, and lightweight enough and agile enough to be able to, to be used in that fashion and then develop the algorithms and the software that will be able to put together these data streams in a way that can be very useful for removing, again, that human in, that, in the loop, getting rid of human decision makers so that these instruments can operate autonomously. Um, so this is the direction that we're gonna try to take um, this project. This was a starting point, but it certainly isn't the ending point. Down to a Science is produced by Los Alamos National Laboratory, your host, Lexi Patronas. This episode was written and produced by Nick Niegomir. Special thanks to our guests Nina Lanza and Lisa Danielson. Find out more about the laboratory and its mission at www.lanl.gov.